Welcome to the Dwelling Place Church audio podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's message. We pray God speaks to you today through this message and through His Word. For more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org. Now, it's time to listen to this week's message. I can't remember a time where during a message preparation process, God spoke to me so clearly as he did in preparing for today's message. That's a pretty bold statement, but I think it's, it's very true from my experience. We started last Sunday a message series called It's Time to Grow. Would you say that with me? Say, It's Time to Grow. Pastor Chad challenged us as we kicked off our seven-day fast, and we believe that God has strategically poised us as a congregation for great growth and acceleration in this new year. We believe that with all of our heart. We also believe that to be true for your life individually. Today, I want to share from the last letter the Apostle Paul ever wrote. Paul wrote 13 out of 27 New Testament epistles. The last one he writes, he writes to his dear son. He writes to his mentee. He writes to his beloved disciple. That beloved disciple's name is Timothy. He tells Timothy things like this. He says, Timothy, don't be a hypocrite. Drop the mask. Don't be two different people. Be sincere, he says to Timothy. He at one point tells Timothy, he says, fan into flame, Timothy, the spiritual gifts that God has uniquely given you through the laying on of hands. That he, says, he says at another point, he says, Timothy, don't be intimidated. Don't be scared. Don't be intimidated by all the voices and don't be intimidated by all the external pressure. He says, Timothy, don't you know that, that God has not given you a spirit of intimidation? God has not given you a spirit of fear, but he says, Timothy, he gave you a spirit of power. He gave you a spirit of love. Timothy, he gave you a spirit of self-discipline. He goes on in the epistle and he says, Timothy, be brave. I want you to be courageous. Be full of the strength of the Lord. And he says, when you're brave, um, what will happen, Timothy, is that when you find yourself in difficult situations, uh, the gospel will just come to you. You'll just be able to express the gospel and you'll speak about it and you won't be ashamed about its power. You will be able to stand strong and you will be rooted in the gift that is called grace. But today, Paul is going to introduce us to three characters in three unique fields. It's kind of a bizarre set of passages, if I'm honest with you. It really is. And when I was reading through them, they snuck up on me. They, they just kind of snuck up on me out of nowhere. And I thought I understood the translation, and I thought I understood the interpretation very well. But as I began to study it, I realized really quickly I was deeply, deeply wrong in this passage. What is Paul encouraging Timothy to do? And so what I want to do for the next few moments is I want to read this passage over you And then what we're going to do today is go verse by verse, unpacking it. And I want you to understand in our time together how each of these characters in each of these specific fields can actually help you live the most satisfied, growth-oriented life you could ever imagine. This indeed is a message all about growth. This is indeed a message all about the harvest that God has for your life. I imagine for some of you here today, you find yourself wrestling. It's the beginning of a new year, and you want a satisfied life. You want to live a very content life, but 
things just haven't been adding up. Things have just not seemed to be level. And I want to tell you that somehow, some way, these three characters in these three fields will help paint a picture and help you live the life that God wants you to live. Second Timothy chapter 2, I'm reading from the NIV today, beginning in verse 3. He says, Timothy, join with me in suffering like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. He said, no one serving as a soldier gets entangled in civilian affairs, but rather the soldier tries, attempts to please his commanding officer. He goes on, verse 5, similarly, anyone who competes as an athlete does not receive the victor's crown except by competing according to the rules. The hardworking farmer should be the first to receive a share of the crops. Notice that. Interesting. Soldier, athlete, farmer. Battlefield, athletic field, agricultural field. Now what I want to do for the next few moments is I want to take you back into the ancient Near East. I want to take you back into Roman and Greek culture and I want you to understand the importance of these characters and how Timothy would have understood the apostle's admonition to him. Let's start first of all with the first character. Let me read to you that soldier part again, verse 3. Join with me in suffering like a good soldier of Christ Jesus, for no one serving as a soldier gets entangled, he said, in civilian affairs, but rather tries to please his commanding officer. So if you look at this, the very first one that we find in our text is soldier. Soldier. It's interesting. Now, to the Romans, there was this thought as a soldier. We live to be a soldier. As a child in the ancient Near East, as a child in Greek and Roman culture, you would have aspired to be a soldier in the Roman army. A soldier was of great importance. A soldier was of great stature. Uh, in fact, the mandate to be a soldier was that you really had to have four things. Four things had to be true in your life if you were going to be a soldier in the Roman army. The first thing of your life would be marked by sacrifice. You had to be willing to sacrifice. You had to be willing to literally sacrifice your life for the sake of other people. Not only did you have to have sacrifice as a part of your life, the second mandate to be a Roman soldier is you had to be obedient. You had to be obedient. You, obedience is a fascinating word, by the way, because scripturally, obedience is twofold. It's twofold. First, to obey is to hear well. Obedience is first hearing well. The second part is to respond quickly. How many of you, now many people in this room, you have already begun to hear the whispers and the promptings of God throughout this seven-day fast. You've already begun to open up your soul to allow God to begin to speak. You've begun to hear his promptings, but you have not responded quickly. You've not responded in haste. You've not responded to his beckoning. To be obedient is to listen and then move immediately. To be an obedient soldier is to hear well and then respond quickly. Now, my daughter, she's one of my daughters, my middle-aged daughter. She's five years old, but she was three years old. She learned a word. I want to show you a quick picture of her, one of my favorite pictures of her. Now, don't, don't let the cuteness fool you, okay? Don't let the cuteness fool you at the pumpkin patch. My daughter, at this age, three years old, um, 
she, uh, she learned a bad word. She did. She learned how to say it. And when she said this word, I don't know, I, I certainly didn't teach her this word, but we got this word in the same season of life that I call stool. I defined her three-year-old life by the stool because she had this little stool she would bring around the house to get up high enough to get anything she wanted. And she brought that stool everywhere, right? But my, my three-year-old learned a really bad word. And when she says it, her shoulders would go back and her hands would go up. And that word was, why? You remember this? Come on, you remember parents? Why? Why? And just like any good parent knows, after the third time your kid responds why, you respond with, because I said so. Why? Because I said so. Why? Because I said so. Here's the thing. In the soldier in the Roman army would never ask his commanding officer, Why? They would say, go to battle. They would say, done. Because they had this trust and they had this respect for their commanding officer. They believed that he or she knew what was best for their life. My question today is how many of you find yourself looking up at God going, why? Why? How many of you in this season of life find yourself looking up at a God who is speaking and prompting and directing and you find yourself going, Why? There is a God who is seated on the throne, a supernatural God who is whispering, who is guiding, who is leading, and speaking to you, and many of you find yourselves acting like a three-year-old saying, why? If we had the trust like a soldier in the Roman army, A soldier had with his commanding officer, we would move so quickly to fulfill the whispers and the desires and the speaking of our commanding officer. The third thing that a Roman soldier had is they were loyal. Oh, loyalty was a mandate to be a soldier. They were loyal to their unit. They were loyal to their people. They were loyal to the commanding officer. And fourthly, they were devoted. Boy, were they devoted. Oh, yes, they were devoted. There was a Roman code that that essentially said this, we forbid any soldier engaged in military occupation to be engaged in any other civilian affairs. It was the Roman code. They did not want a soldier to have multiple commanding officers. They did not want a soldier to have multiple directing voices. Now, One of my favorite authors of all time, I guess he probably is my favorite author of all time, his name is Dallas Willard. He's now gone to be with the Lord about three, three and a half years ago. Dallas Willard, uh, really the the king of discipleship, and he was interesting, and you study Dallas Willard's life. He was a philosophy professor at the University of Southern California for about 30 years. He wrote a book in the late 80s, really mid-80s, called Divine Conspiracy, and from there, it really just influenced the theology of discipleship for so many evangelical writers, but he taught philosophy for 30 years at the University of Southern California. He taught the same few classes in the same few classrooms for most of his life. At the end of his life, after he had retired at USC, I was able to watch him in an interview where he was speaking at an event about a year before he died. And a guy, a pastor, got up on stage, and he sat down next to Dallas Willard, and he asked him the question. He said, Dallas, he said, I imagine in all of your time of teaching, you've learned a lot. He said, I want you to tell me something. He said, What would you say is the primary difference between your first incoming freshman class 30 years ago 
and the incoming class, freshman class that you have 30 years later? And he said, oh, it's easy. I don't even have to think about that. He said, what is the answer? He said, these new students are so distracted. He said, it's the number one enemy to spiritual formation and discipleship in my mind. He said, the current context, people are so distracted. He said, young people's minds are in a thousand different directions and a thousand different places. And he says, because of that, they miss out on the kingdom of God breaking in all around them in their current context. They miss out on the whispers. They miss out on the promptings. They miss out on the guidance of God. This, my church, is why Rome said that every soldier could only have one commanding officer. Every soldier can only have one voice speaking to them. They must not get distracted because if you get distracted from your one commanding officer, then your sacrifice, your ability to be obedient, your ability to be loyal, and your ability to be devoted will begin to waver in the heat of battle. You can only have one commanding officer, and you must spend your days attempting, trying, and striving to please the desires and statements of that commanding officer. I wonder how many of you today find yourself distracted, totally distracted, being pulled away from the present moment, and you just can't seem to be able to be fully here in the moment. And when we can't be here in the moment, we miss out on what God has for us in the now, in the here. So we have a soldier. The second character that he gives to us in the passage is that of an athlete. An athlete. Now, an athlete in the Roman culture was a big deal to Roman and Greek culture. You know this. They loved chasing after the victor's crown. They loved going after the the medals. The Olympics originated with Roman and Greek culture. And the whole idea, this whole idea of pushing themselves to win, to push yourself beyond the limits. There was, uh, in Greek, a phrase called athleonomenos. Athleonomenos. Now, athleonomenos is the very language used right here in verse 5. He said, no one who is an athlete can win the victor crown except that you or that athlete completes or competes by the rules. That's athleonomenos. This phrase in the Greek culture actually meant it was very crucial in understanding the difference between an amateur athlete and a professional athlete. Now, I'm sure many of you, uh, you in college or even now after college or outside of college, you've played some rec league sports. I know I've played some rec league sports. I've played some intramurals even while in college. I'm sure many of you, I've been to the gym. I've been to some field houses. I've been to some places. I've even seen some of you show up at the gym, and you got all the gear. I mean, you are rec league. You are rec league basketball player, but you got the new kicks, and you got the expensive shorts, those, you know, the short, little shorty, shorty ones that guys wear now. I don't, I don't know where, where those things are catching on. I, I don't know how basketball players can wear those, but you got the expensive shorts, chubbies. That just don't even sound right. You know what I'm saying? Um, they, you got those expensive shorts. You got the expensive basketball, right? But there is... The truth is, there is a massive difference between rec league guy and professional athlete, right? I mean, rec league guy can have all the gear. Rec league guy can look amazing. But the problem is, they only show up to the field or the basketball court once a week, and that's to play. 
There's a big difference. The professional is so disciplined. The professional is so disciplined in their schedule. They're so disciplined in the weight room. They're so disciplined in the film room. What they eat, what they put in their body, how many steps they take in a day, whether or not they need to use a hoverboard or not. I mean, on all of that, why? Is to create enough space or margin in their life that they can put up enough shots in the NBA game. That's what it's used for, to practice their craft. A massive difference between rec league guy and professional. Rec league guy and pro athlete. Many of you, if you create something, some of you artists, maybe some of you started out years ago, just started taking photos, and they were horrible. But, and you knew they were horrible compared to what you were doing now, but you started taking photos, and, and the people came around you, and you were kind of even embarrassed to show people, but people started looking at them, and they were like, there is some beauty in that. There's beauty in what you're presenting. And they said to you, maybe, maybe you should sell that. Maybe you should make a career out of that. And all of this fear came in. It's like immediate insufficiency, immediate incompetency, and all this fear and intimidation. And, and finally, one day, you said, you know what, I'll do it. And you step out, and finally, over a period of months and years, you start to see yourself as a professional. And you begin to make a career out of your arts. There's a big difference from... A a, a person who is a hobby and does something as a hobby to that of being a professional. Which got me thinking, how many of you today are rec league Christians? How many of you today are people where you got your Bible and you got your Hillsong and you got your Tomlin and you got your leather-bound Bible and you know some Christian songs and you know Jesus culture and you got your Matt Redman albums, but you just show up once a week. You just appear at church once a week. And yet Paul is telling Timothy, he says, if you want to harvest, if you want to grow, if you want to be who God's called you to be, then I'm encouraging you. You must be a disciple 24-7. You must be a student, a learner, a follower, an apprentice of Jesus Christ. You must be someone who is hungry. You must be someone who is intentional. You must be someone who is passionate, someone who takes it seriously. Not someone who just shows up once a week, but someone who is present, someone who is available to the gift and the power and the, the, the spirit of God that's before you. He said you must be a 24-7 disciple. Which one are you? Fully devoted or rec league guy? And underneath that, every great, great athlete knows the rules of the sport. Every great athlete knows the rules of the sport. Many years ago, I had the opportunity to talk with an NFL athlete. His name was Justin Griffith. He played for the Atlanta Falcons, the Oakland Raiders, as the fullback. He lived in Gainesville, Georgia, where we were at, and he was a part of a church that we were a part of. And so I was able to spend some time. I actually went to McGee, Mississippi, and did one of his camps in the summer. And I was able to talk to him, and in about June, playing for the Atlanta Falcons, every single pro athlete, football athlete, was given a binder. It was about that thick. It had 650-plus plays in it. And every pro athlete had to memorize that playbook. They had to study that playbook. And he told me that in a few weeks, as we get ready for summer camp, if we have not memorized this book, we will be cut and I will not have a football job. Every great athlete, every we're not talking about rec league athlete, professional athlete knows the playbook. They know the rules. And it's so crucial. Why? Because if they want to win the victor's crown, they've got to know the playbook. If they want to win the race, if they want to return to their city, every pro athlete wants to return to their city. 
And Atlanta won't do it as long as Steve Sarkeesian is our offensive coordinator. I just throw that in there. That was not part of my message. Dear God, please help us, Jesus. But every athlete wants to get home. And they want to walk into their city. And people say, hell to the victors. They want to say, hell to the conquering warriors. That's what they long for. But it starts with the mindset. Rec league, amateur. Or actually someone who takes it so serious, they see themselves as a 24-7 disciple. Which one are you? The third character in our text that we find is that of a farmer. A farmer. Now, it's interesting, the farmer. Farmer is huge in the ancient Near Eastern world. The Roman culture, the farmer is a crucial role. So we move from the battlefield to the athletic field to the agricultural field. The farmer... There was land. These farmers were hardworking men and women. I mean, there's no John Deere. There's, they have picks and they have shovels and they are out there working, trying to get the ground ready for the seeds to go in. I mean, have you ever met a farmer before? Have you ever shook their hand before? They will crush your hand with their sandpaper grit, 70 grit hand. I mean, the strength of farmers, you know what I'm talking about? I mean, the strength of farmers, why? Because they wake up, you know when they wake up? Before the light comes up, and they're out in the field when the light comes up. And guess what? When the light goes down, they're just now coming in and putting their tools up. These men and women are incredibly hardworking people. There's so much strength in them. They are hardworking men and women. And what's their job? Their job is not to grow plants. Farmer's job is not to grow plants not to grow agriculture. You know what their job is? It's to prepare the soil to put seeds in it. It's to prepare the ground to get seeds in the ground, to get the soil ready. So they till the land. They get the weeds out. They plant the seeds. They get the seeds in the ground. Then they water the seeds. Then they got to protect the seeds from the dust. And they got to protect the seeds from the bugs that try to get it. And then you know what they do? They wait. Farmers understand patience. They understand hard work, but they understand how to wait well. It's telling our pastorship, if you really want to study how to be a pastor, you need to stop like the rest of America studying the CEO business model, and you need to start learning what farmers do, because that's what pastors are way more faithful to do than any CEO ever dreamed of. You will learn way more from farmers pastoring than you do from CEOs. They learn how to wait. They know how to wait well and, and be patient. They understand that. I, I don't know about you, but I don't think our culture knows how to do that. Right? We live in a microwave generation. We want our food faster. Hey, I read an article this week. Maybe I'm behind the times. I read an article this week that Amazon is currently creating a way for you to order something, not in all places, but like Atlanta, specific cities where you can order something in a specific city and it can be to you at your door in less than 60 minutes. Amazon will now begin to deliver things to your house in less than an hour. Now listen, church. The world's largest taxi company, Uber, owns zero vehicles. The largest, world's largest accommodation provider, Airbnb, owns zero real estate. The world's most popular media owner, Facebook, creates zero content. 
what does that mean for the church? What does that mean for the church moving forward? See, we see the beauty of fast food and we see the beauty of Amazon and we see the beauty of great coffee right away the moment we want it. And we think the same should be true with spiritual formation, but I've told you before and I want to tell you again, you cannot microwave spiritual formation. You can't microwave spiritual discipleship. You have to work that soil. It's a process, and you plant the seed. And and once you plant the seed, you have to protect it, and you wait. And listen, church, when you learn how to wait well, you will get to experience the harvest. You get to experience the growth. And when that harvest comes out, when that harvest comes forth, and you get to pick it, you get to enjoy it, you get to celebrate it, you will literally be on cloud nine. In fact, in the ancient Near East, why did they create festivals? They created festivals to go in the same time or to run parallel to harvest season. They would throw festivals. Why? Because they took the fruit from the vine. They took the fruit from the land. They got to experience the full harvest. So this week, I started thinking about this. What does a soldier, athlete, farmer have in common? What does a battlefield, athletic field, agricultural field have in common? God, what are you speaking to me about this? Look at verse 7 says, if you look at your text again. He says in verse 7, Paul says to Timothy, reflect on what I'm saying, for the Lord will give you insight into all this. <laughs> So he's like, hey, I just dropped a bunch of knowledge about soldier, athlete, farmer, about a battlefield, athletic field, agricultural field. Now pray to the Lord and he'll show you. You know what he's literally saying? He's literally saying to him, figure it out. Don't call me or text me. Thank you, Paul. You helped me as a pastor. Figure it out. Don't ask me another question. That's what he's saying. So I started asking the Lord, what's going on here? There has to be something here. So I'm reflecting on this. So here's what I do. I start reflecting. I say, God, what do you want to say to us today at Dwelling Place? What, what does this mean? And I felt like the Lord had me write these on note cards. I put them on my own sheet of paper. And then I felt the Lord prompt me. And he said, Craig, I want you, I want you to circle. I want you to circle commanding officer. He said, I, I think this is the key, commanding officer. And so I said, okay, Lord. And so I went over to athlete. I said, Lord, what do you want to say about the athlete? And I just felt like the Lord saying, the rules, the rules are so important that you must play by the playbook. I thought, okay, Lord. And so I went to farm and I began to look at these words. And I said, Lord, what do you want to say? Paul told you, you said the Lord would give insight to this. So Lord, what do you want to say? And I just felt like the Lord said, I want you to take your pen. And I want you to circle harvest. And so now I'm thinking, commanding officer, playbook, harvest. I'm reflecting on this, and I'm thinking, what, God, are you saying? Did you know, church, that every day on average, sociologists tell us that we make 35,000 decisions? Every person in this room on average makes 35,000 choices every day. Now, when the Hebrew people were getting ready to move into the promised land, God came to them and he told them in Deuteronomy chapter 30. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 15, this is what God said. He said, this day I call heaven and earth as witnesses against you. And he said, I've set before you life and death. And he said, blessings and curses. And then he says three words. Now you choose life. 
35,000 choices every day. And God says to the nation of Israel, you choose. That word choose in the Hebrew language is the word bahar, B-A-H-A-R. Bahar means that what you choose, you boldly proclaim is the best possible way to live. Whatever you bahar, you are saying to the world that this is the best way to live. That means to the Hebrew people, church, every choice mattered. And here's why. Can I just explain for a minute? When it, and I'm going somewhere. When it comes to Christianity, one of the primary things that's different from Christianity than any other world religion is this. A lot of other world religions, a lot of other religions that are false religions, they have idols and buildings that tell you how great God is. They have idols that tell you that this is you should worship God and this is how awesome God is. And they create these temples and these buildings and structures for you to say this is how good God is. But do you know how good our God is? Our God's so different that our God took pieces of himself and his own image and he put them into you and me. We are all filled with the Imago Dei. We are filled with the image of God. And this is the way that God created this. Every one of you, every one of us, every day, every decision we make, God created 35,000 decisions every day that you get to showcase to the world what God is like. Every decision you make showcases to the surrounding world who our God is. This is why every choice matters, and every day you have 35,000 of them. So I began to reflect and pray, and I said, God, what are you saying? And here's what the Lord said to me, as clear as I'm talking to you today. He said, Craig, if you have 35,000 choices that you make every day, honest question, Craig, he said, who is your commanding officer? He said, who is your commanding officer? Is it me or is it someone else? And I'm in this reflection, I'm thinking, oh my goodness, God. And I take out a pen, and I take out a note card, and I begin to write down my commanding officers. I begin to write down all of my commanding officers, and here's what they were. Me, God, shame and guilt, oh, shame and guilt, fear, security, people's perception. And then an asterisk are three things that were said to me many years ago that I seem to can't get over sometimes. So as I'm reflecting on these commanding officers, I felt like God simply said to me, Craig, rank them. Honestly, rank them. And I didn't want to, church, because I'm thinking, I'm thinking I'm going to lie. I'm thinking I'm just going to lie to the Lord and say, oh, God, you're number one, and all these others are way down here. These others are just so far down the list, God. And so I said, I'm going to spend a week. And here's what I did. I spent one week. And I said, I'm going to do an internal audit. And let's see what comes to the front. And here's what I came, here's what I came to realize. Number one was me. I'm making most decisions. Number two was God for me. Number three was people's perception. Number four for me security. Number five for me, fear. Number six for me, shame and guilt. My seventh commanding officer were these three lies. Now here's the interesting thing, church. 
each one of these commanding officers has a different playbook. Each one of these commanding officers has a different trajectory or desire for the way that the direction of your life should go. Each commanding officer has a different set of rules by which you are to submit yourself to. And depending on your commanding officer and depending upon which playbook, you will have a unique harvest. My God, this is where I'm going today. This is why it's time to grow. You have a totally different unique harvest. We as a church have a different unique harvest. You're in life individual, your marriage has a unique harvest depending upon which commanding officer and which playbook you are committed to. Now think about this. Let's take this a little bit further. You ready? I have been reading the news lately. I've been reading the news lately. been watching the news lately. I feel like an old man that I love to watch the 11 o'clock news. And I've been asking myself the question, commanding officer, playbook harvest. Commanding officer, playbook harvest. So I've been reading, watching it play out. And how if you get this wrong, commanding officer, it will deeply affect your harvest. It will deeply affect your chance at living a satisfied life. It will deeply affect your chance of living a growth-oriented life. So in the news, I've been seeing people that are completely motivated and driven by money. This is our consumeristic world, right? Money. People that it's, it's everything for them why they get up in the morning, why they continue to work hard hours, why they sacrifice their family on the altar of making more money. It's everything they want. Well, if their playbook is money, I mean, if their commanding officer is money, what will be their playbook? Wall Street Journal? Watching the stock market? What's going to be their playbook if they're only commanded by money? Forbes magazine? Now, here's the reality. At the end of their life, you know what they might make? They might make some money. But you know what? It's usually never enough. It's usually never enough money. And underneath it, you know what they really harvested? they end with a field of greed. Their harvest is greed. Their harvest is desiring more. I was in a store recently. I was looking at a magazine. I was standing in the line waiting. And I'm opening up this magazine, and I turned open to a page, and there was this 72-year-old man who is shirtless. And he's bald on the top, a little bit of hair on the side. And he is yoked. I mean, this dude is cut. I mean, his pecs look like planters outside of people's windows. I mean, he is, he is yoked. 72-year-old man. And there's this caption that literally says, this could be you. And I'm like, wow. I go to the grocery store. You go to the grocery store. You pick up a magazine. Click on Instagram. Open up Twitter. What is the society trying to tell you? What are they trying to sell you today? They're trying to sell you image. The commanding officer is image. Image. Image is everything. That's what Canon tells us. Image is everything. And if that's it, if how you look is your commanding officer, if how you feel about your body is your commanding officer, if that's everything that matters, what will your playbook be? GQ? Cosmo? Cosmopolitan? 
What would be your playbook? If, if image is everything for you, what is your playbook? 72-year-old man plan? <laughs> I don't know. 72-year-old man plan may work for you. Let's, let's, let's be honest and think about this. Let's harvest that. What, what will you get? Probably at the end of your life, when you're laying in a hospital bed or a hospice bed, there will be no one in your family that will come up to you and say, hey, Dad, would you please take off your shirt? We want to see your muscles. And I think about how many people spend like five and six hours a day worried just about image, and it absolutely harvests nothing that is transferable in the next reality. This doesn't go. Oh, yeah, we're to be stewards of the temple, but I'm talking about your commanding officer. Is the commanding officer just image? All of this, you all, is not transferable into the next kingdom. And probably it will create some form of narcissism or ego. That's your harvest. Let me take it even deeper, if you will. Some of you in this room, you feel the effects. You feel the effects of shame and guilt. It feels nonstop for you. It's your commanding officer. It's like a shadow that follows you. It's like a shadow that won't let you go. The shame storms are always close and they, they just want to thunder and they want to lightning and they want to pour down on you pictures of your past and pictures of what you've done to other people and pictures of how you've hurt other individuals and pictures of, 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 of what you've said and hurtful things and, and it's always so close and it always wants to try to shift your focus on, its pa- on your past and the shame wants to come in and try to keep you preoccupied with what you've done in the past and how many of you, you've done this thing to someone else or how you've hurt another person or how relationships has been torn and and that's your story that you just consistently hear the things you've said and the things that you've done to other people and listen church really at our core we only have three things we can do to that shame and guilt three things number one we can obey it when the commanding officer of shame begins to speak we can obey it and if we obey it we will only have more shame and harvest more shame and harvest self-pity and harvest more self-hatred and it will be a downward spiral of contempt that leads us all the way to a cesspool of despair you can obey it one or you can defy it you can be like my 3 year old and look at shame and say why that's not true anymore. Why? Jesus has set me free. Why? That's not who I am anymore. That's not me. And sometime today, maybe some of you have the opportunity to really have a regime change. And some of you say, you know what? Shame, guilt, you are not my commanding officer anymore. You are not going to dictate the, the plays and the direction and trajectory of my life anymore. I have someone else. But the truth is, most of us don't do either of those two when it comes to shame. You know what we do? We do option three with shame. There's only three options. One, obey it. Two, defy it. Number three, numb it. We numb it out. That's what we do with shame and guilt. We numb it out. Here's what happens. We feel the shame storm really close. We feel it difficult. We are seated at the table with our spouse or we're seated with our friends or we're seated with our kids. 
and we have this opportunity for intimacy and connection and communion to talk with my spouse, but we don't want to talk about it because we don't want to talk about the shame and guilt. We don't, we don't really want to bring it up so the meal ends, and so because we don't desire to really talk about it, we say, hey, how about we go down to the basement and let's watch some Netflix. So we go down to the basement. We get down to the basement, and, and we watch a Netflix, and we watch one show, and one show ends, and now we look back at our spouse, and now it's opportunity for connection and relationship and intimacy and talk about the shame, talk about the past, talk about the issue, talk about the relational tension. But because we don't want to talk about it again, what we do, we just say, just one more show. And when that show ends, you know what we say? We look at each other and say, just one more show. And we look at that show, and we say, just one more show, and all of a sudden, we spent the basement time from 7.30 p.m., till 12.30 a.m., and then we go to bed, and we sleep four or five hours, and we wake up in the morning, we're completely exhausted because the night before we put terrible food in our bodies, and so we say, I need energy, I need energy, so we say, okay, I've got to have energy, so you get your monster, your Red Bull, or you get your nice, holy ground, fresh coffee, and you just begin to inhale it as much as you can, and you go through the rest of your day lethargic, and the evening comes, and you sit down at the table again, and you have a chance for connection and relationship and talking with your spouse, but because you don't want to talk about it, you do the same thing. You're too tired to talk about it. So you say, let's go down to the basement. And you turn Netflix on and you numb it out again. And you know what you've harvested? Escapism. Which might I add, personally, I believe might be the greatest harvest Americans eat daily. Escapism. So what's your playbook? numb and you harvest now escapism and it will lead you down a spiral of contempt into a cesspool of despair now some of you say are you kidding about Netflix maybe I'm kidding about Netflix maybe I'm not but the ways in which we choose to numb I don't know it could be pills it could be the bottle we numb out through pornography there's different ways that we numb out I don't know what the way you numb out There's different ways, but here's what the reality is. We all want to run just a little bit faster than the shame. We want to outrun the shame. So I look at this, and I don't know about you, but I go, this is not really a satisfying life. This isn't really satisfying. And I wonder how many of you in this room today are living with rival commanding officers and you're preventing growth and you're preventing the harvest that God wants and the right harvest. And I think today, once and for all, can I just say with boldness, there needs to be a regime change over your life. Every life in here, there needs to be a regime change. There needs to be a regime change at the beginning of this year for our congregation as a whole. Paul said, be a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Can you imagine if every one of us in the this church, if every one of us, if Jesus was our commanding officer, if, it, if the primary commanding officer in 2018 was Jesus, can you imagine what would happen with this church? Can you imagine what would take place with this community? I mean, this is the one who sacrificed for us. This is the one who was obedient to the Father. This is the one who was loyal to the cross. By the way, I'm going through these four things. This is the one who was de- devoted to the King of devoted to the, 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 the crucifix and the form of suffering that Jesus had to go through. And the reality is, do we trust that Jesus Jesus knows best. As the commanding officer, do we trust that Jesus knows best? And if so, what is your playbook? Can I just tell us? Our playbook is one thing. Your playbook is one thing. It's the Bible. It's the Bible. You want to know what separates rec league Christians from professional Christians? You want to know what separates rec league Christian, amateur Christian from full-time disciple? 
It's that full-time disciples love the Word of God. They eat the Word of God. They spend time in the Word of God. They eat the Word of God. Later on in the next chapter, 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul would say all Scripture. All Scripture is God-breathed. That means that it's not just words on a page, but it, it still inspires. It still speaks. And look what he says. The Scripture does four things. It seems to be really clear today, right? Four things the Scripture does. He says the, the Scripture is useful for teaching. What do you mean teaching, Craig? It's teaching me how to live a satisfied life. It's teaching me how to live a life that honors and glorifies God. But he says not only teaching, the Word of God also rebukes. It's useful for rebuking. People say, well, I don't like rebuking. That's why I'm not going to read my Bible. Listen, any good, good father wants to make sure you don't think you have it all together. So there are many times in my life why I have commanding officers that are dictating my decisions and the word of God will come and rebuke me. The word of God will come and rebuke me to get me in line. Not only is the word of God useful for teaching, not only is it useful for rebuking, it's useful for, he says, correcting. It corrects you. It straightens out your path. When you're off three or four degrees, it will straighten out your path. But then number four, it not only rebukes, not only um, not only teaches you, and not only rebukes you, and not only corrects you, but it also trains you. And it trains you in righteousness. Righteousness to the Hebrew people could never be separated from justice and shalom. For the Hebrew mind, righteousness is a compound word. It's justice and shalom. What do you mean? Shalom was God's peace. Shalom is God's intent for the world. So listen, when we go through growth phases, when we are trained in righteousness, that means we care and we come with justice and we come with God's dream for how the world should be in our city. My God, when we are trained in righteousness, we act justly and we always have a creative imagination that sees the the world the way that God wants the world to be. We have the shalom of God, the desire and the intent of God. And when we live righteous lives with Jesus, when we have Jesus as our commanding officer, the Bible as our playbook, rooted and grounded in God's word, then all of a sudden we bring justice to Woodstock and we bring to this city what God intended this city to be. This is the harvest. And then he goes on, why does the scripture teach us? Why does it rebuke us? Why does it train us? Why does it correct us? He says, so that we may be thoroughly equipped, prepared for every good work. Greek word for equipped, it literally means equipment. It means put on the helmet. It means put on the glove. It means put on the chest protector. And he says, God's word will give you the gear so you have what you need to go into the world and do good work. And for some of us, we've started a new year. And you've already gone two weeks without giving at least 15 minutes a day to sit with this. And it's another year and you still won't sit with it. And another year and we still push it away. And we say, I can't. So I thought really hard about it. I'm almost closed. Casey, just come and I'm going to ask the team to come in a second. I thought really hard about it this week. Why do we push it away? If the only way dwelling place will grow this year is to have our commanding officer, Jesus, and to have our playbook, the Bible. Why do we push it away? Why do we push it away? And I started thinking, you know what? I realized something. Some of us, we have as our primary commanding officer, shame, and then we try to use the Bible 
as the playbook. And when you use the Bible as the playbook, when the wrong commanding officer, you don't harvest the right thing. You harvest more fear and you harvest more hatred and you harvest more shame. And it finally clicked. We don't read the Bible because our commanding officer is the wrong one. And the word of God can only bring the right harvest when Jesus is the commanding officer in our life. If not, it's a perverted harvest. Let me tell you, folks, that's not who God is. The playbook will only allow you to harvest the best thing. When we really have Jesus as the commanding officer and we have the Bible as the playbook, We will finally harvest, church. This is the whole point of January. This is the whole point of it's time to grow. We will harvest the only thing that we can take into the next reality. We will harvest the only thing that God cares about on the earth. We will harvest the only thing that fires the Father and the the Son together, and that is that we will harvest people. Craig, what do you mean? Yes. If all of us will make Jesus our commanding officer and will make the Bible our playbook, it will always lead us to see people the way Jesus sees them. So take our president, for instance. I'm not trying to be political, but you can say your commanding officer is Jesus. But if your Bible is not your playbook, you call people S-H-I-T whole countries. That's just the reality. You don't see people the way God sees people. When you are really hearing Jesus and you are committing yourself to the playbook of the Bible, then all of a sudden your ability to perceive what God is doing around you becomes so aware. You begin to treat people the way God treats people. I never forget. Years ago, I was at a church serving. I had a young man who was in our ministry who I loved deeply. Unbeknownst to him, his dad, we did baptisms on Wednesday nights. Unbeknownst to him, his dad was getting baptized that Wednesday night. I'll never forget this. I was on the near the stage and I looked back and I saw the young man. And he did not know his dad was going to be baptized. And his dad comes out the back curtain. And I never forget this. He looked up on stage and he saw his dad in line been praying for his dad, believing for his dad, wanted his dad to be obedient to that command. And I never forget, when he looked up on his dad, he he literally got out of his seat after his dad gets out of the baptistry and he sprints down the aisle and he runs up the steps and he gets next to that baptismal pool and that dad comes out of that baptistry pool and he puts both arms around him and he bear hugs him and he jumps up and down and he is celebrating. What are you saying, Craig? When we have Jesus as the commanding officer and we get this kind of trajectory in our life, when all of a sudden the harvest comes and dwelling place churches are planted, when all of a sudden the harvest comes and we see a hundred people come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, all of a sudden when the harvest comes and miracles begin to take place in marriages and lives are being restored you will run from the back and you will pick up your dad and you will celebrate and you will you will throw a festival why because you know what it's like to prepare the soul you know what it's like to be devoted to the work of God you know what it's like when nobody else heard the whisper and the prompting of the commanding officer to commit your life to saying I'm going to wait on you God I'm going to be devoted to you God and listen to me church that's what God wants for you that's why you're not satisfied that's why your job's not enough 
enough. That's why your money's not enough. That's why the big house you thought would satisfy you won't satisfy you. God has designed you and wired you to spend your days tasting the harvest, rejoicing in the harvest. It's time to grow. It's time to grow. I think of a person in this community. Do you remember a few months ago in that baptistry pool right there? When Zachary Parsons, come here, Zach, real quick. Come here, real quick. Remember when Zach was right here in the baptistry pool? And his sister, who I've known for years, who I saw her come to the saving knowledge of Jesus because her sister prayed for her for years. She came to an all-night prayer to church, and she came to Christ. Zach comes a year ago today, actually the end of this month. He moved in January, right? The end of December. Is that right? December. And so he came to our our first all-night prayer in January, and you came and you got baptized. What month was it? March, he got baptized. And when I gave him the mic down here in this baptistry pool, you remember it's not a dry on here. He said, he began to share the testimony. Just share real quick of what you were going through at that time and then how God saved you. I was uh, really alone and um, I, I knew that I wanted friendships, but I didn't feel like anybody would, would enjoy being, like wouldn't be in their life. Um, so I wouldn't talk to anybody. And I came in here all the time and I'd keep my eyes kind of glued to the ground. But and I try my best to avoid people and, and, and not um, and not talk to them and stuff. But um, because people were saw me and they um, cared about me and they showed me that they loved me and they they reached out and they talked to me even though I didn't reciprocate it and I didn't talk back to them most of the time. But they didn't give up and they showed that they loved me despite everything that happened to me. And I didn't have to be afraid because. There wasn't, their love wasn't circumstantial. It didn't matter what I did to them. It didn't matter what I had done in my past. And they just showed me a love that I didn't have to be afraid to be myself, be afraid to connect with people. And yeah, that's just. Yeah, and he was in the Baptist and he said, you know what, I was even suicidal at times. And there were seasons where Tony, I knew, had prayed because she had told me, prayed that he would not commit suicide, he would not take his life. And when he came up out of that water, I turned around and I watched Tony out there and it was the most joy-filled expression I'd ever seen. Why? Because she finally tasted the fruit. And what God desires for our church, oh, I saw it in my mind's eye this week in prayer and fasting. I just saw people picking up dads and bear-hugging them. I saw people reaching down and and caressing and touching little children's face. I saw people getting up. In my own creative imagination, people who have been bound in wheelchairs getting up and walking, beginning beginning to move again and legs being strengthened. Why? Because when we really make Jesus our commanding officer and we commit what we do under the lordship of Jesus and his inspired authoritative word, then the harvest is always people. The honest question today as the band comes is who is your commanding officer? Is it Jesus? Or like me, do you have six or seven different commanding officers? Prestige, honor, stuff, a lie, money, career, or is it just your own desires? Who is your commanding officer? Or is it really Jesus? Is it really Jesus? And I felt like today in preparation that the Lord said today, once and for all, we're going to declare a regime change. 
And I felt like the Lord say, tell the people to denounce other commanding officers. Denounce them. He said, Craig, how are we going to do that? Here's how you're going to do that. Just a minute. It's not, not hard. You're just going to simply stand. And when you stand, you're going to denounce whatever, whatever rival commanding officer that you have been submitting yourself to, your ears to, your heart to, your mind's attention to, to denounce the commanding officers and say, there's a regime change, and I'm going to now receive all of my instruction from King Jesus. Some of you, you've got to get in a Bible reading plan. You've got to get in some kind of devotional. You've got to get in something to submit yourself to the Bible. It's a brand new year. It's a great opportunity. 15 minutes a day. That's all we challenge you. Just 15 minutes a day. Submit yourself to the playbook of God. To be accountable. There's connect groups around you that will hold you accountable in, in, in scripture reading and Bible reading. There, there are people. There's row phases you can tend. But, but this year, make this year be the year where we really harvest the only thing we can take with us into eternity. And you know what, Chad? I thought about this week. When that young man makes it to heaven, the young man who's in our ministry, he won't have any of his money there. He won't have any of his career there, any of his job opportunities there. But you know who'll be there? His daddy. And his daddy was able to be one because he continued to pray, continued to receive the instruction of the Lord Jesus and submitted himself to God's word. That's the harvest his people. So you say, I'm in this room and I want to denounce a rival commanding officer. I want you just to stand right now. You don't, have to, you don't have to say out loud what that commanding officer is. Just stand where you're at. Just all around the room. You just stand and say, man, I'm just denouncing whatever commanding officer it is, whatever's making decisions, whoever it is or whatever it is, if it's fear, if it's insecurity, man, fear sometimes. I've never dealt with it in my life, but in this last year, fear has tried to be a commanding officer. It's tried to speak and declare, and it's a lie. So with me, like me, would you lift your hands to the Lord of glory right now, our commanding officer, and just repent. Just take a few moments to repent. Repent for making decisions and repent for making decisions based on rival commanding officers. Lord Jesus, we come before you this morning, God. And regardless of whatever rival commanding officer we find, whether it's shame or guilt or I don't know what it is, maybe it's a, a, a desire for security or, or maybe it's hopelessness that has been speaking to us. I don't know what it is, past fear. Maybe it's past pain, emotional damage. I don't know what rival officers are here today. But Lord, by the authority of your word, God, and by the response of your people in faith, we stand today denouncing every rival officer. We denounce them in Jesus' name. You might just want to say that with your own lips. I denounce whatever it is. I denounce that there's a regime change, that Jesus is my commanding officer, that Jesus will lead my life, that Jesus will lead my family. Lord, I declare over this church, God, that Jesus and your word would be our playbook, God, that we would see a harvest of people in this year. Lord, that you would see people come to the saving knowledge of Jesus, that we would see those that are born again grow as fruitful disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. That, Lord, we would see a harvest, a harvest for your kingdom, not for our own glory, but for yours, God, for your name's sake, for your glory, God, that you would exalt yourself in your church, that, Lord, you would be lifted high and draw men to you. Lord, let every 35, all the decisions we make, the 35,000 choices we make, Lord, I pray that each of them can be decisions that would, would place uh, to the world or showcase to the world what you're really like, that you're a loving God, that you're a compassionate God, that you're a merciful God, that you would help us in our decisions. You would help us to be submitted to the counsel and the wisdom of your spirit that you are the wonderful counselor, God. You are able to lead and guide your people. And so, Lord Jesus, I just pray specifically today for this church. 
Let it be a year of breakthrough. Let it be a year of supernatural growth, God. Growth in every area. Growth in every area we declare in Jesus' name for your glory. Thank you so much for listening to this week's message. If you would like more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org.